Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. And in this episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Professor of Politics Chris Hanretti and playwright and screenwriter James Graham. From COVID and Brexit cronyism, pork barrel politics, and even accusations of blackmail from colleagues in the Tory party, we'll discuss whether politics became a game with self-interest outweighing the public good. Now, Armando, why are we discussing whether politics has become a game? Surely lots of our listeners will be thinking, well, it's always been that way. Well, I was, you know, something that sat with me, I think it was late last year when they showed that video of the practice press conference from Allegra Stratton. They were all basically trying to work out how best to describe the party slash work event that Johnson did slash did go to. Um, and they would say, oh, well, can we say it was a business meeting? Can we say it was uh, a seance? Can we say it was a whatever? But n- nobody was saying, this is a lie. We're all lying here. You know, it was just assumed that you had to come up with the best lie. And yes, I agree. I'm sure it's been like that from the word go. But I do wonder whether now especially since our politicians and their researchers seem to be getting younger and younger again, whether they go into it as a game or as a means for going into something else much more lucrative post-politics. So I thought it would be interesting to discuss this with with two people who, for different reasons, have been close up to politics and analysed political behaviour, you know, one from a much more research documentary point of view and someone who for as a as part of research for writing has been closely involved in watching these political animals at play to see what they feel about it mm. and of course on this subject i mean your name comes up a lot whenever something egregious mm. happens in politics people will say oh you know you could imagine this in the thick of it and well, that's they, something you must hear yeah so many well there's times. two things one one is uh, oh i can't wait to see the thick of it version of this <laughs> which implies that it should be turned into you know comedy or the alternative is well, I imagine she must be just hanging himself in absolute frustration because he can no longer, you know, <laughs> reality is just so much crazier than than fiction. But I think that does mark the fact that something very peculiar is going on in the way politicians behave now. It seems to be much more overt and less less embarrassed or less. there's less of an attempt to conceal the machinations. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that overtness is is so obvious. I was I was covering the Batley and Spen by election. You remember it last year, and it was interesting because Boris Johnson visited the constituency, and he was out loud saying, you know, if you vote Tory, you'll have a chance for investment, either by the Towns Fund, the Leveling Up Fund, or the many other funds that we have available. And I just thought that outright bribery was was yes. actually quite shocking. Yes, and that's seen as like him being, you know, Boris being Boris. But it's also a politician being a politician. There's the, the lack of shame now or the kind of feeling that it's a bit of a lark, I suppose, is the other element. Lots to discuss. Today, we have two special guests, James Graham and Chris Hanretti, to help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different. To tell you a bit more about them, James Graham is a playwright and film and television writer. His breakthrough play, This House, takes place between 1974 and 1979, focusing on the intrigues and sometimes the comradeship between rival teams of party whips in the minority Labour governments under Callaghan. His political dramas, which include Coalition, Brexit and Uncivil War, and Quiz, to name a few, continue to garner critical acclaim and a huge amount of interest and admiration from current and former MPs. And Chris Hanretti is a professor of politics. His work concerns representation, and in particular, the link between what constituents think and what their representatives in Parliament do. His research into the Town Fund, a government scheme designed to support towns across England, particularly those with high levels of income deprivation, found that it was driven by party political consideration and not by need. Welcome. <laughs> Does that, what uh, Anush was saying there about Boris Johnson being very, very overt about bribing constituents, does that ring true? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess there's a, a little bit of a, a game in terms of how far politicians can push it. If we talk about, you know, levelling up, that is a really noble objective, one that people of lots of different political persuasions could get behind. But when it comes to the implementation of that, that's much more tricky. So it's fine to say, well, you know, we're going to improve rural transport links. But if someone's worked out, oh, the way that we most advantage conservative leaning areas is to work out exactly what factors in a spreadsheet we need to tweak, you know, that's bad. The problem is, how do you get behind the, the public statements and work out, well, you know, people have done it in that way. This this policy scheme, which might, on the face of it, be designed to lift everyone up, has actually been engineered in a very, very specific way. Um, and so it's that point where, you know, public policy programme gets suborned. And, and sometimes I find, you know, making that case stick quite hard. But has it, has it got more overt? Is it much more calculating? I remember uh, uh, it was quite some time ago, uh, a Labour MP telling me, uh, I won't name the MP, but he's currently Mayor of London, um, <laughs> telling me that, you know, last day of a general election, if they had the choice between canvassing an old people's home, a care home, or uh, student accommodation, they'd go to the care home because they know that they were going to be voting, whereas the students probably wouldn't be. You know, it's all... So there has always been a, a sense of, you know, approach those who you know are going to vote for you and don't approach those who won't. Yeah, James, I've seen, uh, you've been close up in analysing, uh, really, pre-Brexit, but you researched very closely what was going on behind the Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right what you said about him. I mean, basically, I think... 
this has always happened. My first play you mentioned, Anusha, was This House, which was set in the 1970s, about how the whips tried to sustain a minority government in Parliament. And to do that, sometimes, you know, when you're winning or losing votes by a single vote each time, they, the MP for, for example, Batley and Spen becomes very important. Mm. And, and if they come into the office and they're not quite converting, is it moral or is it immoral for them to go, well, my town really needs a tram and I, and I don't know but is that what we elect our constituency MPs to do to go and serve our interests and sometimes to to bend the rules and use their influence and use their savvy I mean I think I'm sat opposite the person who uh, historically you know made brilliantly politicians and civil servants more accurate than anyone ever did by showing their gorgeous incompetence and how they <laughs> how they bluff their way through their lives like we all do but I think I think actually also we are also as an audience members sometimes really excited by the idea of politicians being impressive, even malignly impressive, as long as they're competent with their wickedness, we quite like it. So that's why famously Francis Earhart in House of Cards mm-hmm. became such an iconic figure because he was actually good. He was successful in being evil and but, wicked. But and are people going into politics now with those models in mind? You know, they've grown up on the the fictionalized version of politics yeah. and are trying to translate that into reality. Because I, I, it's always struck me, you know, Malcolm Tucker I had down as destructive and part of the problem in politics but I, you know people have told me they've gone into politics trying to emulate Malcolm Tucker and see Malcolm as a kind of hero I'm, I'm probably a bit guilty sometimes of romanticizing politicians um, and it's slightly easier to do that when you set most of your plays in the past because they don't see much to be um, hopeful and ideological about in our current um, cast of characters whereas actually in in this house in the 70s yeah, particularly, not that I'm going to be biased, but particularly in the Labour Whips office, you actually had a lot of people who didn't come from a... They, they weren't career politicians. Mm-hmm. They didn't study politics, PPE, Oxford. They came often through the trade unions or they came through local politics. And you got a sense, and I could be, again, overly sentimental, but you got a sense they had a certain mission. There was a struggle. And to achieve that struggle, you had to sometimes compromise or or, or, um, or do things a little differently. So you had people like Walter Harrison, who was the deputy whip in the 1970s under the Wilson and Callaghan government. Famously, Tony Blair said he was the only man he was ever terrified of. And he was this brutal Yorkshire man who would throw Neil Kinnock up against the wall and say, you're getting in that bloody chamber and voting. He, you know, <laughs> and you look back at it now and you go, that's horrifying, obviously. Yes. That's bullying. We don't condone that. But he was driven, I believe, by a sense of purpose and a sense of ideology. And at the end, justified the means because there were things to do. I get less of a feeling that now. I think, I think it does more feel like a game of political survival. Although there is some of that strong arming still, even if it's less physical, because you had the Tory MP, William Ragg, who Mm. came out and accused Number 10 of blackmailing colleagues who were putting letters of no confidence in on Boris Johnson with saying, oh, you know, we'll pull the funding for your constituency. Christian Wakeford, who defected from the Tory party to the Labour Party recently, said that he'd been threatened with pulling funding from a secondary school in his constituency in Berry if he didn't toe the line on free school meals, for example. So it is happening behind the scenes, even if it's perhaps... But that was interesting because that's the first time people brought cover and said that, you know, that it said things that people had known about for years. It's like somebody saying, there's a lot of sexism going on in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. You know, it's like, it's no... So- I wondered whether that's because things had gone too far. Why it's interesting when people kind of defect in that way, maybe they're thinking, I can go public with this now because there's going to be some kind of change and I'll look like the foresighted person who went early. But all these people (laughs) who now splashed with that information 
that has landed without much uh, resonance. So I'm kind of curious now, are they regretting their decision to go public? What happened to some of those threats and promises that were made? It's a really good question because like you say, James, there are a lot of MPs who are in it for their local areas, but they, they with the examples that I've just given, they find themselves wrapped up in the having to compromise and having to toe the line just as much as the more careerist MPs who are looking at the ministerial level. Yes, and I, I suppose what I'm talking about are those who go into politics. I'm sure they, everyone goes into politics with a certain sense of ideals and things they want to achieve. But those who go into politics with a real firm intent to get into power and and whether they they see politics now as more of a game that just the, just something that needs to be played and played properly like James you were talking about the difference between in the 70s people came from having a work experience outside mm. now i get the sense they've come through like you say politics degrees workers researchers and think tanks and then and then going to become a candidate. And you have to have a fair degree of first ambition mm-hmm. and, and secondly also a bit of narcissism to get involved in, in politics. There's been some research on political ambition and how that relates to a, a dark triad of personality traits. There's an idea of narcissism, <laughs> ambition and a, a bit of sociopathy. I like the dark triad. That's like the axis of evil but worse. Yeah, you know, if you can combine all these negative personality traits into one you know, negative superpower, then suddenly you're <laughs> So what's the triad? For what's the- I think it's this narcissism ambition and it, I'm not sure it might be sociopathy, but I think it, it we need to know that last one. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound a good mix. But if you have all those uh, character traits, that might help you to get to this election stage now. And it might not have been necessary if there was you know, a union official who was saying, well, look, we need someone. We're going to put you forward. Mm-hmm. That sense of being a little bit more enmeshed in community organisations rather than just you looking out for yourself. Mm-hmm we are often in the position of defending politicians and saying, well, you know, they're not all bad. Mm. But maybe maybe there are some personality traits that <laughs> are not so great. But it tends to be the most interesting ones that in the end decide not to run for the big the big post or, or you know, I, I remember Tony Blair tended to get rid of most people who were quite interesting and eccentric and promote people who were quite managerial in their kind of outlook and weren't really a diversion. It does worry me that, not to draw too bleak a conclusion, but Chris, you're fundamentally saying the country's run by narcissists and sociopaths. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's, it's, it's a tough job as well, isn't it? Again, I'm not going to just constantly defend them, but, you know, as a dramatist, I sometimes think I have to get inside these people's heads and be generous to them and what would drive someone to be a member of parliament. And I think particularly at this moment, as well as all the things traditionally associated that's hard with being a member of parliament, especially if you live on the Isle of Skye and you're representing, you have to come down and leave your family every day. And, you, and if you don't have much money, you live in a little flat. And that's why I found the world of 1970s and 80s politics quite seductive in parliament because all the MPs came from across the country and you're there and you're on your own. So that's why the drinking culture was very large because you're just away from home. And that's why a lot of parliamentary business was done in the, in the strangers bar and smoking out on the terrace. There was something about that life that I think is quite both sort of seductive but also really tough. But also being an MP now, you know, you get you get death threats, you get trolled on Twitter. So you have to think, to Chris's point, like why, what would motivate you to do it? And I think it is either naive ideology that you can 
still cling to some sense of public service and do good, or it has to be the opposite. It's actually that you don't care and it's fun and it's a low-stakes game and you're just going to enjoy yourself. Did it surprise you to hear about the drinking culture in Number 10 over the last year or so during lockdown? Did- yeah, it did. I was deeply, like everyone, I was just really disappointed. You know, it constantly, this particular prime minister seems to have no consequence to his actions and nothing shifts his popularity in the polls. And I suspected, I, I like probably everyone else, I called it that I thought this would be the thing that would do it because... It's just bad form. Like, you don't... <laughs> it's just rude. Like, if you break the rules, if you jump ahead of the queue at, at McDonald's, you are hated. Well, it and may that's well what he be. Did. It may well still be. We're still, you know, the police, once the police have yeah. finished their eight years <laughs> investigation <laughs> and, yeah. and Sue Gray is summoned, we, we, you never know. Hi, Anoush here. We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to The New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover. Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election. And Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Politics now does seem to require people to have a very thick skin. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, Matt Hancock, who has been through lots, and yet who's still thinks of himself as potentially someone that people might vote for in a leadership election. He, for me, sums up what I find worrying about political life at the moment, that that there is that sort of personality around who doesn't quite get it, doesn't quite see how what they're doing doesn't connect and doesn't work and and is of a different... It's it's like he still thinks he's in the game. You know, because he's played it before. Well, I do. I do think that that they do see it as a game in that sense, because he'll see himself as one of the good ones because he did resign. We had an episode in our previous series about how why no one resigns anymore. And so he'll probably think, oh, I've played it right. You know, I resigned at the right time. People will have time to forgive me and then I can move up and up. I was speaking to a Tory MP recently who used to be a minister and had to resign in quite a minor scandal sort of years before people stopped resigning. And he was saying, and then I got to return and do X... Y and Z job, you know, so it, they do see it as that kind of a game of chess. Yes. The other game element that, that the other image that I still carry from the last two years is, do you remember when Matt Hancock 
promised in the early days of the pandemic that there were going to be like within a month there was going to be a thousand tests every week and whatever and he promised it and and he gave himself a deadline and then and then they did it and he published he tweeted a photo of him and his advisors around a whiteboard in his office with lots of numbers that all added up to more than a hundred thousand and 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 again it just felt like so you see it as a, like a maths problem that you know you've opened up the to that morning's paper with a little puzzle in it about how can you get to 100,000 via... The, and it, it felt like, you know, as long as we can make the magic number happen, mm. we're off the hook. It felt like the image was leading the policy. It is still a workplace environment. Sometimes there might be occasions where you've set yourself some objective and you reach your objective and you think, oh, this is wonderful. And then you step back and think... Oh, it was a very particular objective in a context where lots of people were dying. So maybe let's not celebrate it yes. so much. Is that a kind of reflexive element that we want people to to have and the ability to step back and say, well, this might look bad? Well, it was a sort of thumbs up and smiles next to the board <laughs> that just got me as being a bit odd and slightly kind of tone deaf. Um, <laughs> but I do wonder, are they trapped in a bubble where, you know, what they're saying and doing now is is all consuming and therefore to them it is vitally important and, and it's difficult for them to get a perspective of how the public are seeing them. Well, I guess it, it would have been more all consuming in the 70s if you had this tightly knit group of men all drinking each evening. It was, but then of course why it was different was because there was less transparency. So we just didn't see it. I mean, we literally didn't see it until, was it 1980? When was the first televised? We'll check. But yes, we, you know, even Prime Minister's questions or the big debates in the Chamber of the Day were only heard on the radio. So you didn't see it. And so there was, so obviously it is now much better that the level of access we have to these people's lives and their business uh, is available. The problem is it's just so relentless. The information is constantly coming through on a minute-by-minute basis. It's hard to get a sense of it. And, of course, then the main obsession, it seems, that politicians have is controlling that relentless stream of information, controlling the narrative, controlling the image, whether it's Rishi Sunak laying out his spring statement on the table or what hoodie is he going to wear when he does that. or And that, I'm sure that's always been the case. Image, you know, Margaret Thatcher famously was a, was a made-up character. She made her up and then started to play her in the same way that Boris Johnson Johnson is essentially a made-up character. Donald Trump refers to himself in the third person like he's writing him as a character. <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump. So yeah. so it's not necessarily their fault. In a way, maybe it's more interesting to think of it as our fault. Our obsession with these people as people means they have to be, they have to get to the 1,000 number. Mm. Whereas previously, they could work more in private, more in secret. And was that a good or not? Yes, yeah, so are we swayed by the very carefully crafted images that they yeah. concoct? And in a way, that means, and I mean this respectfully, but like, what is the purpose of Matt Hancock? Like, what does, <laughs> as a concept, you can as mean a it man, anyway you like. You know? But like, like what, yes. what does Matt Hancock want to do? Why does yes. Matt Hancock want to come back? And again, without being naive, I think that's what I find the most unsettling and unsatisfying about this political moment is that disagree with previously even as much as you wanted to from Howard McMillan to Margaret Thatcher. They had a project. They did have a thing to do, and we can disagree with it, but you can't deny that the 1980s radically changed the nation and possibly the world. You can't deny that New Labour did a whole number of uh, cultural, social, economic changes that we can point to and exist. When I think back over the past, and it's not just a Conservative thing, but when I think over the past 12 years since the coalition government, and you think, what can, what can I identify as the single thing that has changed the look or feel of this nation? Apart from Brexit, I can't think of a single 
think single thing. That's a bigger part from. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, 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 is it? Because that's just returning to the status quo from the 1970s. So it's not, I know it, it's been fascinating and dramatic and it's painful and it's torn families well, apart, think, and, but it, it's not a thing that's been done. I, and also, I think a lot of those who were behind Brexit would still be hard put to identify what it is that they want to achieve with it. With exactly. It, yeah, completely. You know, in the next two years, five years, 10 years. Also, austerity as well, which has massively changed the country sort of since the coalition brought that brought that policy in. And what's interesting now is you just see the, the, the current government sort of trying to make up for all the money that was cut since austerity, yeah. pretending that they're, pretending <laughs> they're not that, the yeah. same party. Yes, that, we're going to undo the evils it. that we did. And you go, well, that's fine. But so, so, so exactly. And, I, and again, I'd, there's also the argument that the government shouldn't do everything and maybe a smaller government is a better thing. But I, again, I just, I, I have a belief. There is like, there's just basically so much to do. There's so much generational inequality and, you know, house building. If they just built a million houses, if that was the thing they'd achieved in the past 10 years, that would be a thing to point at and go, this is what government can do that the private sector can't. So that's why I'm most annoyed at Boris is I just... I get that he wants to stay prime minister, so he's going to fight fight really hard to do that. But my question to him, whispered it in his ear, would just be, why? What do you want what to do? do? You want? What do you want Britain yeah, to I be? Think that's what it was when I saw, you know, the the the, the whiteboard with the hundred thousand on it and the press conference, the the mock press conference. You know, who are you and what do you want? Who yeah. are these people? <laughs> and are they are they like us? Um, yeah. or, or I mean, I don't want to say that people have gone into politics with the worst intentions and so on, but it seems to for me what, who, who I'm seeing on my screens or, or in terms of who's in the background seem to be people who are there partly to fill their CV up so that they, when they're about 40 or 45, if they haven't made the top job or anything like it, they can go off and, and do something much more exciting internationally. Or in Is that what you want from Matt Hancock? <laughs> <laughs> Should he exit the scene gracefully? Well, I think he was going to be some UN envoy at one point, wasn't he? he? Was, until, yeah. until even the UN went, no, hang on a minute, he's Matt Hancock. I'm reminded of, you know, when you watch The Apprentice and the ones who are all got all the confidence and all their name, but you can tell no nothing, but it's all kind of, it's all brash and I'll go out there. Uh, don't you worry, I'll get this sorted. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and I get the feeling that that's the people who are running the home office and the, and the, <laughs> and the health department and the education department and, and the cabinet office. Yeah, and, and is, this why, is, this, is, this, is this sort of style no, of government no, no. the reason why they're kind of trying to buy votes? With your research, Chris, you found that they're spending the Towns Fund in sort of politically expedient areas. I mean, the Towns Fund is a really good example of a more general pattern, which is don't just increase the funds for general programmes, don't fix universal credit, don't tackle house building, um, you know, don't do something nationwide for transport, but create lots of small little programmes that you can announce in lots of different areas. Mm-hmm. And even the the object itself, the Towns Fund, uh, towns are a really weird thing in England. They're not a unit of, of local government. The government almost had to create this electoral geography in order to give away this money. So it was super weird. It was targeting money in a very particular way. And it was so blatant. So one of the things that made the Towns Fund really interesting was that civil servants had produced this rank-ordered listing of all the towns, 580 of them, and they gave it to ministers and said, well, here's our our ordering. We put them in three categories from 1 to 580. 
now it's over to you, you get to make the final selection. And so they just bumped all the ones that were in conservative areas up the list. And it was it was brilliant for me as, as an academic, because most of the time when we're trying to explain some outcome, there's always someone who says, oh, well, it might have been deserving on other characteristics, and you can never say we have ministers to you know use their political judgment, and maybe they saw something. Come on, guys. It was a, a really nice ordering and you moved a whole bunch up the list. So it was just so cut and dried. And I was amazed that that evidence was out there in the open, going back to that lack of sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have a sense of shame, you don't remember to cover things up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wow. Which is like with all the party gate emails, you know, bring a bottle, yeah. guys. Yes, <laughs> and, and take photos. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. That's the thing. There's just no understanding that this might look terrible. Yeah. Uh, well, and was terrible. At least don't write it down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what do we do? Can we pull back from it? That's why I said that Rag saying, actually, <laughs> the whipping system is awful. They're now using threats and blackmail that's against the law. I thought that was really interesting in that someone had broken cover and, and, and started to shine a light onto what, you know, what really is broken in the system. And, but is that just going to be one little you know, brave example or, or is it, is it, is it part, hopefully part of a pattern where people, MPs are going to get more confident and, and, and stand up to threats. I think probably you need a new government that promises to fix what was going on previously because an incumbent government which is affected by these issues is never going to act on it because that's a way of holding your hands up and saying there was some wrongdoing. I guess the strongest defence of the UK system would be, well, we have reasonably frequent alternation in government and that's how we fix things. A new government comes in, tries to implement some kind of fix and that's the way the system progresses. It's not by some kind of mid-term conversion to the cause of good government and probity is because we kick the rascals out. That's the strongest defence. I'm not entirely mm. sure I believe in it. I also think it is difficult to defend the dark arts of whipping, but I'm going to give it a go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because I, that's the first question I asked. I mean, writing yes. a play about whips was sort of t- terrifying because, of course, famously... They don't make speeches. They don't ask questions in the Commons. They don't do interviews. That's why breaking cover was the biggest. That, that was the faux pas that you, you just you're meant to be a really boring chief whip. If if people on the streets of Leeds can know, knows the name of the chief whip, then you're a terrible chief whip. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to be a really boring chief whip. You know. So writing a play about it was terrifying because there was no memoirs, there's no books. But Giles Brandreth famously wrote one in the 1990s. And on the day of publication, he got a, a note through his door, which when, when he opened the envelope, there was just a card with a black spot on it, which was basically from the whip's office saying, you're out. You've, you've done the unthinkable. And you've spoken about the whips and how we operate and what we do. And it is, you know, look, it's, as a dramatist, of course, it's exciting to, to get in the engine room and see human beings cajole and bribe and sometimes, you know, listen and take those messages up to the Prime Minister and say, look, it is really serious. They're really worried about this amendment on the shipbuilding bill. But I think the best defence I heard of it was from Anne Taylor, who was the first ever fe- uh, female chief whip. And she was a young whip, whip during the time of the 70s. And she was just like, well, what would imagine the chaos without it? That you've got 650 individual people with apparent narcissistic traits who want their own individual version of every single policy, every single law, there has to be some some sense of 
collectivism. And collectivism is a good thing. So you compromise a bit, you give me something, I'll give you something. And we make the best version of a policy, the best version of a, a, gov- of a government program that we can we can sell without some kind of, I think that's, I'll defer to you, Chris, isn't that how it's whipping is described? It's something about organising the party's business through parliament, which is suspiciously bland and yeah, boring. Yeah, I mean, par- parties are supposed to be these uh, organs which reconcile all the competing demands on society. And so people tend to vote for the party rather than the candidate. I mean, the the contribution of the individual MP to their vote share is really pretty small. So if people are voting for parties, it makes sense that the party ought in some way to get it what it wants. Mm. I think if you don't have whipping and the parliament is very fractious, then that does, in a way, make a little bit more difficult for people to hold governments, parties to account. Mm. Because I, I don't think they're voting for the individual MP. I remember when first researching for the thick of it, coming across this other group, parallel to the whips, which is the government um, operators called the enforcers, who were these, which was Malcolm was meant to be the chief enforcer, but they were these anonymous figures who fanned out across Whitehall going to the different ministries saying, you know, this is the line you're taking. Here's the yeah. money you've got. This is the policy you're going, and you're on Newsnight tonight saying this. And, and that was their kind of, they sound like the Dementors when they're just coming across. Well, but that seemed like a, a kind of number 10 version of, of, of the Whip's office. It's all very thrilling and, and hilarious often, but actually I do find, what I try to get across in some of the plays, is I find it moving, this this human pull between pragmatism and principles. And I'm sure many of the people we're talking about don't have that pull. They just don't feel uh, there's any compromise there between your getting what you want and your principles. But I like to think a lot of them do. And, and, and that's difficult. That is hard when you go, well, I, I really believe this, but here's what's achievable or here's what I'm being asked to do. And I think there's something, I don't know, still vaguely just about noble about that that tension that you have in yourself as a, as a yeah. politician. But the other, you talked about, you know, in the 70s, it was all behind closed doors. Mm. We weren't allowed to even hear or see Parliament. Then we could hear it for a while and then gradually. Now, of course, with social media and everything, it's, it's the image is on. And I do wonder whether some politicians define themselves by, more by their image than by their political thinking, you know, so as soon as Ukraine is invaded by Russia, Liz Truss is putting out a photo of her standing like Britannia in front of Union Jacks and, and so on. And Rishi Shunak brings down petrol duty and is seen at the pump, filling his car up the next day. It's all a very coordinated social media campaign rather than going out and arguing the case. Well, it's, it's a nice little endorphin boost, isn't it? If you get lots of retweets on Twitter, it's a lot more immediately satisfying than a program of house building nationwide. It might take ten or fifteen years. Yeah, you know? I mean, if, if we go back to you know Macmillan's promises in the fifties, mm. he didn't have any constant validation from Twitter to keep him going. He just had to believe this is a good thing for the country. I'm just well, trying to imagine Howard Macmillan on TikTok, <laughs> <laughs> what that would be like. It's been um, grouse shooting on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things I do think is is serious is is and I would say this, but you know, language is a really powerful weapon to debate ideas and and get to the root of a, of a particular problem. And I could once again be overly seduced by the the past and the world of the seventies and eighties. But I, when I when you go down those rabbit holes on on YouTube and you end up watching bizarre television debates between Michael Foot and Roy Jenkins or something. 
it, it's, I don't mean in a snobbish academic way, but I do feel the way people used to speak and debate and exchange mm. information was more fluid, was more nuanced, was more sophisticated. And I'm sure there are elements of that now, but it does feel like, well, we've all sat through those horrifying Today programme interviews or Andrew Marr interviews when the politician is just trotting out those talking points and they are completely impenetrable to the, to the question being asked. And I think it's bad for democracy. And that's why I think in the, in the vacuum of any kind of human language which can go this is really difficult actually and here's what we're wrestling with and we don't know whether it's going to be right but we're going to try in the vacuum of that what you get are these transgressors who sound like they're actually talking like Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson because they sound like they're actually speaking and they're actually human and they say the unsayable and they make us laugh and that's now the currency in politics it's 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 performance and clownishness and being a normal person. So, I, I, you know, Gordon Brown had his flaws, but as ever, as normally happens, he's back in he's back in the news, and you're looking through at him through sight, rose tinted glasses. Going, despite him being a terrible media performer, I felt like he he had a mission and he had something to say. I mean, we could do a whole series of podcasts on the decline of argument and people's inability to listen to the other point of view. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. Everything has got reduced now. I mean, you know, get Brexit done. Of course, yeah. Take yeah. back control. Yeah. He made all the right calls. It's the rise of the phrase. Yes, yeah. The three or four word phrase. And how you get to the phrase. So it doesn't matter what the interviews ask. You just go, yeah. look, let me be clear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and then I'm going to say the thing I've been told to say by the enforcer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's yeah, impossible. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's hard to criticise politicians for doing that because in a way it works. It's only through that constant repetition that people in the street get to understand the phrase. But that's why they do it, isn't it? Because they they found out. I mean, it's helped for the political obsessives that watch all the news because they have to hear this pablum being trotted out all the time. But if you repeat it constantly, then something sticks. So but it's damaging in a sense that you, you're right, of course, and I have total sympathy that they, they don't they don't want to slip up, they don't want to have a gotcha, and they need to communicate a single clear message. But that's, I think the serious consequences of that are, so Theresa May becomes Prime Minister after Brexit. I think what would have saved our, a lot of the horror that followed was if she had just actually literally had the language to go, that referendum was awful. Can we all agree that we, we that was horrible and we can't do that again? It was 17 million for this, 16 million for this. That's really close. We're all going to have to work together and find a way to get through this because we won't survive this if we can't. And if she just had the language to go, but she didn't. So what she went is Brexit means Brexit. Yes. And then two years after that, you see the consequences of that inability to go, life is really hard, most people are good, can we all just work together? So our slogan shouldn't have been Brexit means Brexit, it should be Brexit means a complicated series of trade <laughs> negotiations, some of which will win, some of which will lose, which will inevitably involve a series of compromise that no one will like. Yeah, stick that on a poster. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very yeah. much. Uh, that's, that's covered most of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chris and James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in. So, Armando, what did you make of that discussion? Because you asked, how do we fix this? How do we change this cynicism? I, I kind of feel that we can't, really, that it's <laughs> too late. I mean, I take the point that you know, most people go into politics with a purpose. I think the key point that came up in the discussion was that if you don't have a purpose, it looks awful. And it may be that even though that type of politician is eager to use social media and image control, it, it may be also our savvy with social media and imagery means that we're finding them out a little bit more you know it's becoming more of a more obvious so perhaps that there's some grounds for optimism there in that we might be coming a little bit more 
onto their ways and, and not be so swayed by them as they think we ought to be. Yes, and the thing about Partygate and also the uh, town's fund being sent, spent yeah. in that cynical way is that we did find out about it because they are being so brazen and so overt and so shameless. Yes, and also I have to stay, stick up for mainstream media because a lot of the big stories that have actually caught our attention and have actually pushed the discussion have been from, you know, the reporter on ITV having the footage from the from the mock press conference, the Telegraph and the Independent, the Times and, and the Guardian publishing uh, elements of the whole Partygate affair. It's it's not been all the kind of websites and uh, news feeds. It's been it's been mainstream traditional daily weekly papers and, and mainstream public service broadcast television that's been finding it out for us. But one thing that does worry me is that Chris's uh, solution seemed to be, well, another government will come in eventually run by a different party and try and change some of those dark arts in the whipping operation, for example. But these are the things that opposition parties never go too hard on. It's a bit like election spending because they're all at it. Yes. And, and obviously an, an opposition party might say an opposition will sort this out. But if they get into power and think, well, actually it worked so Maybe we should stick with some of it a bit more uh, for a bit longer. I think actually, no, the pressure has to come from outside as well. It's no party is ever going to surrender power and influence. No one, no party will ever do that. So that the pressure to do that has to come from outside, I think, has to come from us. We've got to stop buying it. We've got to stop falling for it. And I think we are. This is the last episode of Westminster Reimagined. You can listen back to all five episodes in this series and series one on the New Statesman podcast or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks so much, Armando. It's been a pleasure hosting with you. No, pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.